From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, we learn about a horse adoption program that aims to find homes for the animals after they parade during the Mardi Gras. Plus, we learn about a new grant aimed at promoting cervical cancer prevention awareness. But first... This summer, children in the Gulf South will miss out on a federal program that provides low-income families with extra cash for groceries over the summer. Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi are among the 15 states not taking advantage of the program. But as the Gulf States newsroom's Maya Miller reports, that benefit is just one in a patchwork of systems aiming to address childhood hunger. It's after school on a Friday, and nearly a dozen young kids are playing a card game called Mix Match. We gotta use the cards, and then flip them over. If we don't match them, then we gotta put them back down. This is Operation Shoestring, an after-school program for kids from lower-income neighborhoods near the heart of Jackson. It's also a place that provides food. Executive Director Robert Langford says that's a key part of learning. In order to do well academically, and you've got to, you know, have some food in your belly that's nutritious, that feeds you and sustains you, and That is a struggle. It's sort of a constant struggle uh, for our families. All of the children at Operation Shoestring qualify for free or reduced lunch during the school year. This means that for some, the food they receive during the day might be more than they have at home. Of course, that need continues when school is out. During the summer, Operation Shoestring stays open all day and is something of a food hub. Kids can get breakfast, take field trips, and get shuttled to one of the schools that provides summer meals. If we're serving a couple hundred kids, um, you know, think how many uh, kids aren't being served. There are many more kids to be served. One in four in Jackson live in poverty. USDA research shows that about a third of families living below the poverty line in America suffer from food insecurity. The summer grocery benefits are supposed to help. Extending a benefit that carried families during the pandemic means they would have received about 40 extra dollars a month per child for groceries. 21 million children are expected to participate. Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana are among the 15 states that did not enroll. It's estimated that 8 million kids will miss out on the extra cash. But even in the states that did enroll, that extra cash is just a drop in the bucket. You know, it's going to be helpful, but it's not going to... um solve all the problems of the world. That's Carol Gunlock. She's a senior policy analyst with Alabama Arise, a nonprofit focused on people who are living in poverty. In Alabama, 14 percent of Alabama households had reported in October that they had um, sometimes or often did not have enough food to eat. In Louisiana, it was 14 percent as well. And in Mississippi, it was 15, according to a U.S. Census survey on food scarcity. And that's when school is in session. Gunlock says inadequate food access goes deeper than just hunger. There's just the insecurity, the psychological um, pressures on a child if they don't know whether or not they are going to have enough to eat, which is why school meals are so important. Gunlock is hopeful that Alabama will take part in the Summer Grocery Benefits Program in 2025. But she says states have a number of other resources that could help more. The Child Tax Credit, SNAP, and expanding Medicaid. At Operation Shoestring, Robert Langford says they are always looking for ways to do their part. One of the things that we have done 
um, periodically, sometimes through the school year and certainly uh, during the summer, is on Fridays pack a sort of backpack of food for each child to take uh, home to his or her family. They hope to do that regularly this summer. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Horses and riders are a staple of Mardi Gras parades, but sometimes those horses don't have a place to go after the parades are over. The Humane Society of Louisiana has a program to help those horses get adopted. It's become a part of the Mardi Gras tradition, complete with a Facebook page with pictures of the horses looking for homes. With more on the Mardi Gras Horse Adoption Program, HSLA board member Rena Sweeney joins us now. Rena, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. We appreciate it. Rena, how did the Mardi Gras Horse Adoption Program get started? How did the Humane Society get into the horse adoption business? Well, back in 2017, it came to our attention how these horses come to be in Mardi Gras parades. We, like probably everybody else, just assume that people that are riding them in the parades are probably their owners. And it really didn't dawn on any of us that they would be um, brought in like they are. So typically a local stable brings them in from a broker The horses are purchased and used during Mardi Gras only, and then they would get sold back to the broker where their future was uncertain. And some of them in the past have even gone for slaughter. So we, when we found out about that, we decided to step in and work with the stable to make sure all the horses could get adopted and go into homes following their Mardi Gras parade service. And uh, the stable has been working with us ever since. And so we really appreciate that opportunity and the opportunity to spread the word because, like I said, I think most people aren't aware of how these horses come to be. All right. And so you've partnered with one particular stable. There are many that are that are um, being used to, to bring in horses that, that we'll see during the parades. But which you might as well give the name. There's a, a particular stable that you've partnered with and have been yes. working with for the past seven years. Yes, Cascade Stable there in Audubon Park, and we do appreciate them working with us. Um, you know, obviously they love horses, and so they are really an integral part of this whole adoption process. They make sure when the horses come in from the broker that they're healthy, they get a vet check, um, they temperament test them, make sure that they're rideable. And so we make sure that the horses also are kind of typed by their personality and who they'll be a good fit for so that when they go to their forever families, they stay there. It, just like a dog or a cat, that it's a good fit for that family and what they want to do with their horse. All right. And tell us how the process works. So Cascade will they'll uh, go and and purchase a certain number of horses. How does the process work? Yes. So usually it's 15 to 20 horses per year that come in. Cascade brings them to their facility. And once they're at the stables, they get worked with, cleaned up, sometimes fattened up. You know, they have come to be with a broker for whatever reason. Maybe an owner couldn't care for them anymore. Um, or they need special shoes. So Cascade makes sure that all of that is handled. And then 
in the meantime, on our Facebook page, we have people coming in and looking at the photos and submitting adoption applications. And once we have vetted them and made sure that they are a good fit for the program and they're approved, they can select which horse they'd like to adopt. They can come to the stable and see their horse in person. And then once Mardi Gras is over, everybody takes a break on Ash Wednesday and gets to rest. And then starting on Thursday, all of the families come to Cascade Stable to pick up their horses and take them home. All right. Well, let's back up a little bit because you jumped through. You jumped past a a really big, uh, I think, point here. This is it's all volunteer. I went took a a look at the um, Mardi Gras Horse Adoption Facebook page. And these faces of these beautiful horses start appearing right around Mardi Gras time. Yes. So we go out, the volunteers and I go out to the stable and we have a photographer that will take their pictures. We get some video footage of them and have our horse assessment done. Um, The volunteers then go back and put together all of the information for this year and match it up with the photos. And so our volunteer base really does all of the work on the backside. The stable is taking care of the horses in person. And on the back end, we are getting the photos, going through the applications, answering questions from people on the Facebook page. And we have people that start asking about the horses even in October and around Christmas time, there's hmm. been a lot of excitement built up now over all the years that we've done the program. And so we have people that are already clamoring to get these horses We're already adopted this year. We're speaking with Humane Society of Louisiana board member Rena Sweeney about the Mardi Gras horse adoption program. Uh, Rena, how many horses have you all found homes for? This year, we expect to surpass the 100-horse mark, which we're very excited about. Uh, Past years, we have adopted out just over 90 horses, and that was also including the year we took off for COVID. So really, that 90 horses has only been in six years of operation um, because the one year of COVID in there. All right. So you're about to hopefully hit uh, 100 horses or more. How do you you ensure that the horses that are being adopted are, are not going to be slaughtered? They're not being adopted to be slaughtered. What are the qualifications to adopt and, and is there a fee? Yes, there is a fee. Um, those fees range from maybe $600 to $1,200. And the vetting process that we do ensures that they're gonna go to a good family. So we ask questions such as, have they owned a horse before? We need to see photos of the property. We speak with their vet and their farrier. So they have to have all of those things lined up so that we can ensure that they are going to be a good family, a good owner. They know how to care for horses. And in the adoption contract, it does also stipulate that if they ever need to get rid of the horse for any reason, that it comes back to us. So we make sure that it's never going to go into the wrong hands um, for the rest of its life. We have made a commitment to that horse that we're going to make sure it's taken care of. What reasons do people give for adopting? Why are they saying they, they want to adopt a Mardi Gras horse? 
most of the time it's because it's someone that loves horses anyway and just like us they want to make sure that these horses end up with a good rest of their life ahead of them but we also interestingly enough get a lot of people that really like the cloud of it like oh I have a Mardi Gras horse and so it's a little bit of a bragging point too I think for some people we have another Facebook group that's private where all of the adopters stay in touch and talk and connect with each other. So I think it's just kind of a fun thing to do on top of being able to save an animal that they feel passionate about. Tell us a little bit about this year's group of horses. Uh, their faces are up on, on the page and, and uh, maybe a little background on a few of them and, and how it looks for this group of horses. How many have been adopted so far? And you think you're going to find homes for all of them? Yes, we do. So we every year we make sure that every single horse finds a place. None of them will ever go back to a broker. This year we have four horses adopted so far, and it is very fast-paced. We already have a bunch of other applications that we're sorting through to get everybody matched up to the best horse for them. The horses um, typically end up at the broker for reasons that we don't really know, but it's common that it might just be something out of the horse's control, like maybe they need special shoes or they have to see a farrier more often than some other horses, or maybe just the owner, you know, does not have the financial means to have a horse anymore. So all the horses that come through are really great animals, typically we do see some that might be a bit skinny and need fattened up a little bit, or maybe they need to be shooed when they come in. And we take care of all of those things from the get-go just to make sure that they're ready to march in Mardi Gras, they're able to do so, and that they're ready for their new home. Rena Sweeney is a board member with the Humane Society of Louisiana. Rena, thank you for your time today. Thank you. We appreciate you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. A research team from the LSU LCMC Health Cancer Center in New Orleans has been awarded a $1.5 million grant to eliminate barriers from cervical cancer prevention. Louisiana has one of the highest cervical cancer death rates in the country, with rates higher in predominantly African-American communities represented in both urban New Orleans and rural areas of Louisiana. For more on this deadly but highly preventable disease and plans for that grant money, Dr. Michael Hagensey, a principal investigator for this grant, joins us now. Dr. Hagensey, thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. Now, the grant you're receiving is for cervical cancer prevention. Can you talk some about what cervical cancer is and how it's affecting communities in Louisiana? Absolutely. So cervical cancer, pretty much just about every case of cervical cancer is actually caused by a virus, a human papillomavirus. And uh, so we, we kind of know the cause and, and we know what the virus can do uh, in terms of that. And so between uh, having HPV vaccinations that can prevent infection with the virus initially as well as detecting uh, precancerous lesions and remove them, we really have all the tools really worldwide to eliminate cervical cancer on, 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 on planet Earth, but we haven't gotten that far. So our, our rates of cervical cancer are about 15 per 100,000 in 1975. 
And with these measures that I've talked about, particularly detecting uh, uh, precancerous lesions, that dropped in dramatically in half to 7.7 .7 for 100,000 in 2010. But the problem is, since then, we've had very little increased progress. We've only gotten the rates in 2019 was only 7.5 cases per 100,000, so made very little, little change. And the the uh, feeling is one of two well, one of two things: either we're not getting women screened who need to get screened, and or there the women that are getting screened are not getting the definitive care to prevent cancer. All right. Well, let's talk about a little more about cervical cancer. What are what are the symptoms, and, and how do most women find out that they have it? Like many things, unfortunately, that can be very devastating to to a person. There's really no signs or symptoms of of, of cervical precancer is cervical lesions or cervical cancer. Advanced cases, you may have some weight loss or some, or some abdominal pain, but at that stage, you know, we wanna catch things much, much earlier than that. Generally speaking, uh, women um, for years have had, you know, uh, their, uh, either their primary care provider or gynecologist perform a cervical pap smear where they have a pelvic examination and they collect samples of cells from around the cervix and then we look at those cells and to see if they are, uh, they're abnormal. And if they're abnormal, we then usually lead to a follow-up exam, which we call colposcopy. Colposcopy is when usually the gynecologist or nurse practitioner takes a microscopic view of the, of the woman's cervix and looks for areas that are abnormal. We biopsy those areas and that can determine if you have something that may be precancerous or unfortunately if there's something that's cancer. The, the good news, if it's precancer, we have ability to remove those areas, and that will prevent cancer. Tell us about this vaccine that can prevent it. How does the HPV vaccine work, and how effective is it? The HPV vaccines uh, that, that are out there and commercially available for now for a number of years are, are highly effective. Uh, they are uh, you, the, the uh, a recommended age group starts at age nine uh, to age 26 is the, is the most preferred age to, a time to get to get the Gardasil vaccine, but it's actually FDA approved up to age 45. In terms of efficacy, they're over 95% efficacious to prevent the type of HPV infections that are in the vaccine. Now that's the great news. The the unfortunate news, there are other types of HPV that are not in the current vaccine. They very uncommonly cause cancer, and that's why they're not part of the vaccine. But even though you get the, the Gardasil vaccine or another HPV vaccine, you still have to go through all the other prevention measures like the pap smears and the follow-ups because there are other types of HPV that can still cause cervical cancer. Now, the $1.5 million grant that you received is to eliminate barriers from prevention, preventative measures like the HPV vaccine. What are some of those barriers that, you know, is, are causing such a high death rate, especially in predominantly African-American communities? Yeah, certainly the death rate in African-Americans is already 60 percent higher than, than in other, other populations. And obviously in Louisiana, we have a large African-American population. And, you know, our, our state rates are, are certainly in incidence, it is, it is definitely higher in, in, in mortality. It's also now a simple barrier care is what I call an environmental one. And that is that you live, let's say, in, in, in the lower ninth ward here in New Orleans. You got to travel downtown the University Medical Center to get your care. And then in the rural area, sometimes women will have to go hundreds of miles to actually get to a definitive care. And again, 
in a, in a different way, we're going to try to address that. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Hagensee, Principal Investigator for LSU LCMC Health, about a new $1.5 million grant to address cervical cancer prevention. Now, Doctor, I know there are several stages to this research project. Where do you start? We're going to screen, try to screen in phase one, about 750 women, both in New Orleans and in rural and rural areas of Louisiana, and try to find out what are their barriers to get into definitive care. And some of them, again, are just simply travel and, and structural. But there are also uh, areas where women don't understand the need for cervical cancer screening and, and that. So there's education materials that we want to first ask try to find out what the women know and don't know about cervical cancer, and then try to target designing educational materials specifically based on, on what they you know, what, what women know or don't know. And also, we want to be culturally uh, sensitive, too, and, and to bring those materials uh, to try to understand better the context uh, of the women and what they're going through. And then the, the other area is uh, what we call, I kind of call an emotional area, where it sometimes, you know, the woman is a caregiver for a family and working hard to make that happen, and they emotionally just can't take the time, or they're scared of getting a cancer diagnosis, and so they don't even want to go through the process. And so, both through education and to try to understand their lives better, we want to try to get around and you know, try to find you know, uh, ways to um, uh, alleviate those barriers. As you educate and cross these barriers, there's bound to be more women that get positive test results. What support will you be able to offer for these women? The, the, two, the, the main structural barrier that we're going to focus on is bringing the care of the gynecologist or the nurse practitioner to the women. So, for example, we're going to try to work with some of the uh, uh, local clinics in the regional areas here in New Orleans and and where we screen women uh, for uh, uh, possible HPV infection is to bring the definitive coposcopy care to these clinics. We have colleagues from from the gynecology department here, Antonia Trena, who is going to be working with us in terms of either being herself doing the colposcopy exams or ideally finding a nurse practitioner in these clinics who would want to learn how to do this. And so they can be trained. And then now that we have a sustained effort that they can continue to do this care even after the grant is over. In the in the rural areas, we're going to take advantage of Jerry McClarty and what he's been doing for years up in Shreveport. I believe he has, uh, he calls them mobile health uh, uh, coaches. I call them mobile health units. I think he has three of them now that go to rural areas in Louisiana. And he has onboarding that mammography screening as well as doing the HPV uh, testing. We are going to be using that up front, and then we're going to examine the ways we can bring, again, the, copo- the coposcopy services to these small areas, either in a clinic basis or, if we can, uh, in these uh, mobile health units. Now, right now, we're sometimes forcing women to go over many barriers to get their definitive care, and we um, we need to re- we, we've realized that we can't continue just to say, hey, keep calling people and say, no, please come in for your for your clinic visit. We have to get beyond that. The, the model has been for years as we wait for patients to come to us. And that model works to an extent, but we've dropped our cervical cancer rates to by you know, 50, 60% in, in 20 years, which is remarkable, but we should be at zero. And, and how can we get to zero is we got to identify women not getting screened and those that are screened and are at high risk, we need to make sure they get the care, either helping them get into the clinic or bring, in a way bringing the clinic to them. 
Dr. Michael Hagensey with LSU LCMC Health. Thanks so much, doctor, for being here. Uh, my, my appreciate it. And we're, we're planning to get the study hopefully going in the next couple of weeks. And we're excited to, to uh, we're excited to eliminate cervical cancer because that's what we can do. Thanks, doctor. Thank you so much. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, Humane Society of Louisiana board member Rena Sweeney and principal investigator for a LSU LCMC grant, Dr. Michael Hagensey. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber and our assistant producer is Aubrey Brossel. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.